Sunday school classes have been canceled the last two weeks just with folks out for the holidays. They will resume as normal next Sunday. That's all I have by way of announcements. Again, we're thankful that you're here with us this morning. Let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts to worship the living God. Please stand with me. You'll find in your bulletin a responsive call to worship from the book of Isaiah. If you would respond back with the bold print. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation and walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Give glory to the Lord and declare his praise. Let us pray. Father, we have come here to worship you as your people. So cleanse us in the blood of Christ. Fill us anew with your Holy Spirit and be glorified during this hour, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's turn our hymnals to hymn number 521. My hope is built on nothing less.
may be seated. Our Old Testament reading, uh, I put the wrong text in the bulletin. We're actually going to read 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. 2 Kings 1, 1 through 10. It says, After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but surely you shall die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of the fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. This is God's word. And we will respond to it now with a corporate confession of sin, which you can find in your bulletin. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table today, it is good that we examine our hearts and confess our sins both corporately and individually. So we'll use these words to corporately confess our sins aloud, and then we'll have a few moments of silence so that we can individually and silently confess our sins and bring our requests to God. Let us pray together. Holy Lord, we have sinned times without number. We have often forfeited your peace. We have been guilty of pride and unbelief, of failure to submit to your word, and of neglect to seek you in our daily lives. And shortcomings present us with a list of accusations, but we bless you that they will not stand against us. For all have been laid on Christ. Subdue our corruptions. Grant us grace to live above them. And grant us your peace. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Father, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever and your faithfulness to a thousand generations. As we turn the page from this year to the next, Father, help us to keep short accounts with you. Um, we're to seek to be faithful to you in the coming year, though we know um, when we are faithless, you remain faithful. 
because you cannot deny yourself. Um, that our faith is not based on our grip on you, but on your grip on us. Not our faithfulness to you, but your faithfulness to us. Not our goodness, but your goodness. Not our love, but your love. And so we come today confessing our sins, knowing that you are a God who delights to forgive sins, a God whose servants, whose angels rejoice when one sinner repents. And Father, we pray that the angels would be rejoicing in heaven this day as sinners repent of their sins all over this world and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're also mindful of those in our congregation who are ill right now. Particularly, I want to pray for Linda Wiggins, Barbara Howell, and Terry Reynolds and ask that you would be merciful to them and heal them uh, quickly. I also want to lift up to you those in our number who are struggling. Uh, The holidays are stressful for many of us. Um, For many of us, we're trying to breathe now, trying, giving sighs of relief that the activities and the busyness are coming to an end. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stabilize into regular devotional patterns with you in this new year, that you would fill our hearts with joy, that you would fill our lives with your presence. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us sinners. And now we pray as you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our assurance of pardon this morning comes from Isaiah 38, verse 17. Hear it as if it is spoken to you, because it is. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel, God has cast your sins behind his back and he sees them no more. The sins that you can't forget, God chooses not to remember. Receive that afresh today. Receive the calm of sins forgiven. Now let's stand together and sing hymn number 546, The Sands of Time Are Sinking.
may be seated. You'll notice in your bulletin we do have some faith promise pledge cards. If you'd like to fill one of those out, please do so and drop it in the offering plate. And at this time we will receive God's tithes and our offerings. Let us pray. Father, you indeed are the God from whom all blessings flow. 
you richly give us all things to enjoy, and so we give back as a token of our gratitude and ask that you would use these offerings for your glory. And uh, Father, we pray now also that as we turn to your word, that you would illumine our minds, that you would give us hearts that desire to see Christ in the scriptures, and Lord, that you would bless to us the reading and the hearing of your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Our New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 9. And we'll be reading verses 46 through 56. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 46. Hear God's word. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for them. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples saw, uh, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And this ends the reading of God's word. So I'm starting a tradition today for the Sunday after Christmas. My subject is going to be the most important thing I learned in the past year. And by most important, I'm just saying something I learned that impacted me and that I hope God will, well, has already used to impact some of you and will use to impact some of you today. And the subject we're going to talk about is being a non-anxious presence. And the moment I use the word anxious, some of you are getting anxious because you're thinking, he's going to tell me I can't be anxious. That makes me anxious. I'm not going to tell you you can't be anxious. That's not the point today. We're going to talk about being a non-anxious presence, and that's something different altogether. So three points to talk about this. How anxiety goes, how anxiety grows, and how anxiety can be controlled. Number one, how anxiety goes. Luke 9 is one of the richest narrative sections of the entire Bible. You could spend literally a year just on Luke 9. And we started our reading in verse 46. And that section, starting in verse, verse 46, comes on the heels of Jesus stating emphatically that he's going to be delivered over to men. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to die. Verse 44, right before our passage, Jesus says to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then earlier in the chapter, in verse 22, Jesus tells them he's going to be killed. But verse 45 tells us that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They didn't get it. And they were afraid to further ask him uh, to clarify. So what we see with the disciples in this chapter, and really much of the rest of Luke's gospel, is that they're full of confusion and anxiety. They keep making wrong turns. Now, Jesus is still there to correct them after they mess up, but they're living as though they don't have guidance from moment to moment. So if you look at Luke 9 as a whole, 
There's all kinds of confusion about who Jesus is. Some are saying he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some people are saying he's Elijah come back down from heaven. So Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And you get Peter's famous confession, you are the Christ. So after this, Peter, James, and John witness the transfiguration in Luke 9. They get to see Jesus in his glory, standing with Moses and Elijah. And a voice comes out of the glory cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So from this mountaintop experience of the transfiguration, the disciples try to cast out a demon from a little boy. But they fail. And Jesus shows up to see what's going on, what's all the ruckus, what's going on with the disciples. And the father of this little boy comes to Jesus and says, I begged your disciples to cast out the demon, but they could not do it. That's verse 40. The Greek text is more striking. The man says, I begged your disciples to cast out a demon, but they don't have the power. This was the disciples' biggest failure up to this point. It is a disaster. It clearly wrecked them. You can imagine this poor dad of a demon-possessed child. You can imagine his words ringing in the disciples' ears in the following months. You don't have the power. And so Jesus tells the disciples, let this sink into your ears. While they're still reeling from this failure, he says, let this sink into your ears. I'm going to be arrested And I'm going to die. And the disciples, what do they do? An argument breaks out among them about which one of them is the greatest. It's ridiculous. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die. And they're measuring their biceps. Jesus is still with them. He's still guiding them, but they're living in confusion and anxiety. They're living like they don't have guidance. And they're trying to cope with their failures by arguing about who was the greatest. It's all compensation. Their weakness had been exposed, and so they have to argue about who the greatest is. Weak people either acknowledge that they're weak, or they pretend that they're strong. And the disciples are pretending. That's the argument. Now, when bad things happen in your life, when you fail, we often call that a disaster. And disaster is one of those words I I just love Compound words like this, like if you look at the etymology of it, what does it mean? This, at the beginning, is to be cut off, to be separated, to be separate. An aster, you think of an asteroid, it's a star. A disaster is to be cut off from a star. You know, we use stars for sailing, for for navigation, for direction, for guidance. But then things happen in life where the clouds roll in over the stars and we can't see them. And we're lost. That's where the disciples are. We don't use stars anymore for the most part. We use GPS. And, you know, Jordan Peterson says that anxiety is basically like this. Imagine you're driving through a busy city, a busy, unfamiliar city. You don't know where you're going. You've got your GPS there to tell you when to turn. But it glitches. It goes out momentarily. And you're surrounded by traffic. And you're going. That's anxiety. It's like your GPS glitched for a moment. It's like you temporarily don't have guidance. And chronic anxiety is when the GPS is just busted and it's not going to work. This is how anxiety goes. It's a life being lived with no felt guidance. It's, be, it's a life being lived pretending we have power when we know deep inside that we don't. The clouds have covered the star, the GPS is busted, and in the meantime, you're emotionally white-knuckling it. And that's exhausting. Which leads to the next point. How anxiety grows. That's how it goes, here's how it grows. When anxiety is on the go, it does not like to be alone. It likes to take others along for the ride. It likes to grow. Earlier in the year, those of you who were regular tenders on Wednesday nights in our Bible studies, you heard me quote Steve Cuss a lot. And Steve Cuss wrote a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety that just rocked my world 
this year, and I've been recommending it to everybody who will listen to me, who cares about my book recommendations. And uh, it did a number on me because I realized I, his book is based on family systems theory and scripture. Family systems theory is a field that looks at groups. It could be a church. It could be a business. It could be a family. It looks at groups as systems and reminds us that we are not just individuals doing our thing. We are actually all parts of systems. Uh, we're parts of families. We're parts of churches. We're parts of organizations, etc. And what family systems theory teaches is that most of the problems that organizations face is anxiety, or caused by anxiety. Specifically by the spread of anxiety. Because anxious people like to share their anxiety. They like to spread their anxiety. And anxiety can spread like a virus. I heard a college football coach years ago who was on the hot seat. And of course, you know, this time of year, there's always talk, who's getting fired next, you know, among the coaches. And he described his situation by saying, there's noise in the system. That's an anxious system. So family systems theory emphasizes that anxiety spreads and grows like a virus. For example, if I, your pastor, am anxious, and you can feel that, my anxiety is going to spread to this congregation. The same thing goes, well, and the same thing goes in reverse. If this is an anxious congregation, I'm sure going to feel it. It's going to come toward me. There's no doubt about it. The same thing goes in a business or in a family, like in a family. If I, the husband and father, am living in anxiety, there is no way that anxiety is not going to spread to my wife and to my kids. I'm going to put it on them. And so you see this exact thing playing out in our passage. There's anxiety among the disciples, and it's spreading. It starts particularly with this failure to cast out the demon, which leads to them arguing about who's the greatest, Next, it takes the form of John stating, almost nonsensically it seems, going to Jesus after he tells them to receive little children. John goes to Jesus and says, hey, we stopped someone from casting out demons who was trying to cast out demons. Why, why would that even come up? It's because that thing about the failure to cast out demons is still lingering. There's this guy out there who's not even one of your close disciples, and he's casting out demons, and we've just failed. And finally, when Jesus and the twelve are in Samaria... James and John respond to rejection by asking Jesus if they can call down fire and burn these people up. You know, it's fitting. Because anxiety spreads like fire. They're anxious, and they want to put it down on those Samaritans. The reference to fire is also a callback to the prophet Elijah. And that's why we read from 2 Kings earlier in the service. Elijah is mentioned by name four times. In Luke 9, people think Jesus might be Elijah come down from heaven. Elijah shows up at the transfiguration. And now in this section, in verse 51 of Luke 9, it says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's, it's a really interesting phrase in Greek. It's only used here in Luke. But it's a, it's a callback. Remember, who was taken up? Elijah was taken up in chariots of fire in the Old Testament. And then the reference to calling down fire. The prophets of First and Second Kings, Elijah and Elisha, they lived in anxious times of a really bad king and queen, Jezebel, Ahab, and they loved calling down fire. They loved calling down wrath. You know, Elijah called down fire. You remember what Elisha's most famous call down was bears. He had some punk kids making fun of him, and he utter some kind of curse upon them, and some bears come out of the woods and just maul the kids to death. Now, I preached a sermon on that passage years ago. You know what I called it? Bearing with your enemies. No joke. Back when I was working on that sermon, uh, I remember I was talking with my friend Jeremy Beck, who you hear me quote all the time, and he came up with a phrase to summarize Elijah and Elisha's ministry, and he called it, juiced up, call down. You know what a juiced up call, don't act like you've never wanted to do a juiced up call down. Just call it, Lord, 
if it might be at your convenience, would now be a proper time that a lightning bolt could come down from heaven and just wipe this person out? Somebody is getting on your nerves and you say, God, would it be out of the question if bears just happened to come out of the woods? Anyway, you get the point. Elijah is a perfect, Elijah and Elisha, perfect examples of great men who also experienced a lot of anxiety, and you get to see the trail of it in their ministry. You know, one of the, quote I came across, B.B. Warfield talking about the ministry of Elijah in particular. He says, Elijah is a voice from the wilderness crying one word, repent. He is the human embodiment of the wrath of God. Wherever he goes, destruction accompanies him. Drought, fire from heaven, floods, death for the enemies of God follow hard in his footsteps. Elijah is embodied law. He is thunder and he is lightning. And you know, it's one thing to be anxious from time to time. The GPS is going to glitch. You can't avoid that. But some people live with chronic anxiety and you can not only become embodied law, you can become embodied anxiety. Some people are so anxious they don't have anxiety, they are anxiety. And now Luke is showing us that just like Elijah, the disciples are embodied anxiety, and they're spreading it. They're even trying to spread it to Jesus. Lord, please sanction and participate in our desire to wipe out an entire region, basically. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 55, it says, he turned and rebuked them. I love that it's he turned and rebuked them. Because you, that's drama. Luke is injecting drama into the story. This is mama saying, don't make me come up there. This is a moment where he's challenging them. This is Jesus saying, forgive me the, uh, the grammar, but y'all, you're wanting to nuke an entire region. It's time to chill. It's time to settle down. And that's really this whole passage. It's Jesus managing the confusion and anxiety and pride of the disciples. So that leads us to the last point. Let's look at how he manages and controls their anxiety and confusion. How he ministers to them. Number three, how anxiety is controlled. You can actually see five ways in the passage Jesus tries to rein the disciples in. Here's the first. It's rebuking. He rebukes them. There's a couple of senses of this rebuking. The first is this. The Greek word we translate rebuke means first to strictly appraise someone. When you are anxious, you need to strictly appraise the situation. You need to name your anxiety. We talked about this on a Wednesday night. Name your anxiety. Jordan Peterson likes to use the illustration of a children's book. It's about a little boy who finds a dragon in his house. Little little dragon, size of a, of a small cat. And he goes to his mom and he says, he says, Mama, there's a dragon in the house. And she says, Oh, there's, there's no such thing as dragons. Calm down, honey. And he goes back to his room, and there's the dragon, and it's grown just a little bit. Later, before dinner, you know, his mom calls him to dinner. They sit down at the dinner table, and the little boy says, Mama, there is a dragon in the house, and it is getting bigger. And she says, Honey, there's no such thing as dragons. Don't worry about it. Goes back to his room. The dragon's now the size of a Shetland pony. And so it goes. Every time the mother denies the existence of the dragon, the dragon grows and grows and grows to the point that it's now carrying the entire house on its back walking down the street. And everything's falling apart. And the mother gets home to notice her house is a block away from where it was because this dragon has walked it down the road. And she says, oh, there's a dragon in the house. And what happens? Instantly. It begins to shrink, shrink, shrink. And it becomes a teeny little kitty cat sized pet but the point of the story is this you have to name your dragons anxiety can be one of those dragons the more you ignore it the more it will grow out of control this is part of being rebuked for anxiety also naming it gives you a certain control over it like if I'm going through if I'm walking through the grocery store and someone goes, Heath, 
Guess what I'm going to do? I'm gonna do? You're going to get my attention. It's the easy way to get my attention is to use my name. When someone knows your name, they have a certain amount of control over you. And the same goes with anxiety. Name your anxiety. It's the first step to controlling it. Second, rebuking is a way of putting anxiety back on the anxious person. Let me unpack that. So in Luke 9, 54, it says, And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Okay, James and John had a nickname. They were brothers, and Jesus gave them a nickname. You remember what it is? The Sons of Thunder. It's fitting. So here's how systems theory would describe what the Sons of Thunder were doing and how Jesus, Jesus responded. The Sons of Thunder said, Jesus, we are upset and would like you to get involved by destroying them. Jesus, by rebuking them, said, I do not want your anxiety. You may keep it. He put their anxiety back on them. You deal with it. Anxious people spread anxiety. When I said that this was the most important thing that I learned this year, this is it. Leaders need to possess a non-anxious presence. And that's Jesus in this passage. Having a non-anxious presence does not mean that we will never experience anxiety. That's impossible. It means that when we are experiencing anxiety, A, we will name it and we will acknowledge it. And B, when people are trying to spread anxiety to us, we want to stop the spread. We want the buck of anxiety to stop with us. And I know this is effective, not only because I try to do it myself, but because as I've taught it, people are starting to use this stuff on me, which is always fun when you know, your family uses stuff against you, your congregation uses stuff against you. Like I've had multiple people uh, cuss in his book. One of the things he talks about is you always need to be alert for triangles, right? Triangles. I, boy, triangles have been talked about a lot around here. And, uh, you know, Jesus is being put in a triangle. You have James and John, the disciples. You have the Samaritans. James and John have a problem with the Samaritans. Samaritans have a problem with them. They go to Jesus and form a triangle and say, Jesus, do something about it. That's a triangle. So I love it when, as has happened multiple times, you call me or you come to me and say, Heath, I'm about to put you in a triangle. That's actually a good thing because what you're, you're acknowledging, you're saying, what I'm about to say to you or what we're about to talk about could spread anxiety, but we're naming it. At least we know what it is. And my favorite thing that's happened since I started teaching on this was there was an evening where uh, I was particularly anxious. I don't remember what it was about. And I, I do two things when I'm anxious. Either I totally shut down or I start ranting. And I was ranting this night. And so, you know, my wife, Amber, is taking the brunt of my ranting. And she says to me, Heath, you are anxious. And you are trying to put your anxiety on me. I do not want it. You may have it back. <laughs> and it was almost, almost instant calm because she had named it. She had rebuked it. She had said, no, thank you. So rebuking anxiety, both through naming it and through simply refusing to spread it. Then next... Jesus, I struggled with a phrase to summarize this, but I'm going to call it parenting your way out of your anxiety. Uh, parenting actually causes a lot of anxiety. That's another subject. But look at verse 46 through 48. Uh, it says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So there are other places in the Gospels where Jesus says, become like a child. He doesn't say that here. He says, receive a little child in my name. In other words, stop arguing about who is the greatest and take care of somebody who needs taken care of. You know, Kevin Elko said, treat everybody like they're hurting and you won't miss by much. Jordan Peterson said, don't let your kids do things that make you dislike them. When someone is trying to spread their anxiety to you, ask, how can I receive this person as a little child? It doesn't mean you have to let them throw tantrums. 
It doesn't mean you have to let them get away with everything they want to get away with. But how can you receive this person as a little child? You know, there's, I went back and read A Good Man is Hard to Find, reread recently by Flannery O'Connor. You know, there's that climactic scene at the very end when she's about to be murdered by a serial killer. She says, this is an anxiety-ridden woman who's mean as a snake and ornery. But in one moment of clarity before she dies, she looks up at this killer and says, why, you're one of my own children. Flannery Flannery O'Connor was trying to show. We experience our fullest humanity when we treat everyone like they're our children. So parent your way out of anxiety, in a sense. Next, again, I'm making up a word, but unparanoying anxiety. When John tells Jesus they tried to stop someone from casting out demons, verse 50, Jesus says to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Stop thinking everybody is out to get you just because they're not on the exact same page. Somebody needs to hear that today. You think the world is out to get you. The world is not out to get you. Jesus is not out to get you. He loves you. And then finally, quenching the fire of anxiety. When Jesus rebukes James and John for wanting to get do a juiced-up call-down, um, there's no doubt that Jesus' mind was on the fact that he didn't come to call down fire on his enemies. He came to receive the fire of God, which would come down on him as a substitute for our sin. He came to take the, pl- the wrath of God in our place, not to pour out the wrath of God. Part of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper is exactly that. How do we get bread? It has to go through the fire. And Jesus came to be baked in the oven of God's wrath so that we could have food. Sons of thunder, let this sink into your ears. Jesus was delivered into the hands of men so that you can say, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? When you feel like you're without a star and the GPS is busted, don't spread your anxiety. Don't let others spread it to you. Treat others like they're hurting, and you won't miss by much. Remember that not everybody's out to get you, and particularly that Jesus is for you. And when you feel like you're in the fire, remember Jesus took the fire for you so that you'll never have to experience it. You may not be able to choose to not be anxious, but you can choose to be an anxiety spreader, or you can choose to be a non-anxious presence. And Kevin Elko, one of my favorite quotes, he said, you are not a born winner, you are not a born loser. You are a born chooser. And what you choose spreads. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We confess that we often fail to trust not to tr- it's not that we don't trust that he's able to help us. It's that we don't trust that he wants to help us. That he loves us and truly cares for us. That we are the apple of his eye. That he, we were the joy that was set before him that caused him to endure the cross and despise the shame. Lord, fill our hearts anew with the love of Jesus who took the fire of your wrath so that we might get the glories of heaven. So that he might lead us in green pastures, beside still waters, and fill our cups to overflowing, Lord. Help us to trust in his love and quench the fires of our anxiety through it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's stand together and we will sing the first three stanzas of hymn number 87, which is, The Lord's my shepherd I'll not want.
Please be seated. Well, we come now to the Lord's table and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In this meal, not only does Christ represent to us the fact that he was burned in the oven of God's wrath and trod underfoot in the wine press of God's fury. He also pledges his presence with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. And he invites us to feed upon him now by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are here today and you're not a believer, we are glad that you're here and you are welcome here. But we would ask you to let these elements of the bread and the cup just pass by and not partake of them because this, is, this meal is for Christ's people. But we would encourage you to repent, turn, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then come back after you've made him your Savior. If you've committed a heinous sin and are plagued in conscience, conscience, we'd also ask you uh, not to participate in this meal, but to use this time as a chance to turn from your sin and back toward Christ. But if you're here, like me, uh, and you're weary, and you're heavy laden, and you're struggling, come to this meal. This table is for you. Christ desires to feed you today. Receive him as you receive the elements. Let us pray. Father, we thank you not only for this meal, but for the presence of Christ among us. Would you now consecrate these normal, ordinary elements for a holy and spiritual use? For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now hear the words of institution. On the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As the elders pass out the bread, would you please hold on to your peace and wait until everyone has been served so that we can eat together.
Jesus Christ has loved you with an everlasting love. He proves his love and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Jesus Christ has loved you with an everlasting love. He proves his love for us because while we were still sinners, he died for us. The body of Christ, take and eat. In like manner, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The blood of Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
blood of Christ. Drink from it, all of you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for inviting us to your great banquet. You are our shepherd, and we lack nothing. Use these elements that we've partaken of spiritually now to give us strength for whatever we may face in the week to come, that we might cling to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now let's stand together and sing stanzas four and five of number 87, The Lord's My Shepherd. Well, again, you are all invited over to the Family Life Building uh, for lunch after the service. So in light of that, let me pray and ask God's blessing upon our meal. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the food that you've provided for us, both spiritually and physically. Our bodies are meant to live on food. Our souls are meant to live on Christ. And he has been presented to us today. So, Lord, bless the meal, bless our time of fellowship, and let us continue to honor Christ in our hearts as we fellowship together. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.